This week on Geek Explained, with the year, and not just the year, the decade coming to a close, I'm going to be counting down my favorite comics of the 2010s. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is looking back on the 2010s as a decade in comics. Lots of comics came out this decade. Um, just so much has happened, too. Like, you think about it sometimes, and uh, like, I had to check myself when i thought that oh yeah the new 52 happened in like what like 10 12 years ago it happened like eight years ago <laughs> the new 52 happened in 2011 and you know rebirth happened in 2016 and it's like it's been crazy for dc comics it's also been crazy for marvel comics we're talking secret wars we're talking the growth of uh the avengers to avengers planet uh jonathan hickman taking on both the fantastic four and the avengers and now the x-men like a lot has happened across comics so this week i am going to be taking a look at my 10 favorite comics from the past decade uh this week we also have a giant sized weekly review because we're covering crisis on infinite earths the first three chapters of a five chapter crossover um i'm super excited to talk about that as well and of course this week's comics countdown as well but before we get into all of that a stacked episode to be sure let's check in with this week's news guys and dolls we have some news for you this week how i've been saying how we've been a little light on news we have bounced back finally and we've got news in all four categories this week our categories being film tv comics and miscellaneous of course so um i'm gonna start off with miscellaneous news both of which are gaming news that i'm really really excited about so first off we got an official trailer and uh release date confirmation for the kingdom hearts 3 dlc remind uh that has it came out with a um a trailer that shows off a lot and i'm not sure what to make of it because a lot of the stuff that they're showing off seems like it should be an entirely new game but i'm all for it i loved kingdom hearts 3 i thought it was a fantastic game and a great wrap up to the saga and i'm looking forward to seeing what the dlc is going to bring to not just the game but to uh the ongoing story as we head into the next saga we also got news that after god i don't even know 
how long it's been. Um, we got confirmation that a new Bioshock is in the works. That's right. The beloved gaming series is getting another installment. I'm really freaking excited. 2K confirmed that the new Bioshock is in development and that it created a whole new studio just to work on the game. Um, it looks like it's going to be uh, a little while, so don't expect it until like maybe uh, 2022, 2023. But um, the new studio, which is called Cloud Chamber, apparently has been working on uh, the new Bioshock game in some form or another since 2015. And then apparently the project was shelved in 2016 and a new development uh began in 2017 so it's been in development for right around two years so we could probably expect another year or two before we see it but i am a huge bioshock fan uh bioshock infinite is still one of my favorite games of all time and i absolutely adore everything about that series so i'm really excited about this and i'm really looking forward to seeing what happens um in some less exciting news jumping over to tv um we got confirmation that marvel tv as we know it will be shutting down as the uh television I guess branch of Marvel Entertainment is going to be folded into the MCU with Disney Plus and uh, Kevin Feige taking a more hands-on approach when it comes to TV properties uh, having to do with Marvel characters. We kind of knew that this was coming when all of the Netflix shows were canceled and then steadily shows like uh, Cloak and Dagger, Runaways, shows like that were just given uh, or were canceled in the last, I want to say like six months or so. Uh, basically told that they're finishing out their current season then that's going to be it um it's interesting i think that we're getting this news especially with um all of the formerly uh i guess mcu adjacent shows being the ones that were shelved though i think it was always kind of um uh, I was kind of tiptoed around whether or not uh, both Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, the supposed Ghost Rider show that might have also been shelved, as well as Hellstrom, which who knows what the hell is going to happen to Hellstrom now, um, along with Runaways and stuff, was always kind of loosely connected to the MCU, but not really. So um, Kevin Feige is a mass in power when it comes to Marvel Entertainment, and he is going to be kind of the shepherd for TV just as much as he has been for the films going forward. Jumping back into more positive news that I'm really excited about when we're talking about comics news, uh, we got an official announcement, I've been waiting for this for a little while now, that Green Lantern Earth 1 is finally getting a volume 2. The original volume, which was written by Gabriel Hardman with art by Karina Bacheco, or Bechko, sorry i mispronounced your name and i apologize i was finally getting a sequel i loved green lantern earth one volume one last year really really dug it it's a great reimagining of the green lantern mythos and to know that there is a second volume on the horizon now is really freaking exciting uh, we got an official uh, release date for that as well and that's going to be on june 9th 2020 so it's still six months away but i would rather it be six months away than not knowing if we were going to get a sequel especially with the ending of the last volume which we may or may not cover at some point 
stay tuned. You'll see. Uh, we also got a synopsis for the book, which I'm really, um, really interested in. So I'm going to read the synopsis for you right here. And it goes a little something like this. Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart must team up to save the last Green Lantern Guardian from an evil force. Manhunters. Alien races, rings of power. It's a lot for the people of Earth to absorb, especially when an interplanetary incident forces their protector, Hal Jordan, to leave on a rescue mission that results in the discovery that there's a new player in the galaxy, Yellow Lanterns. While they seem like a benign force for peace, Jordan can't get comfortable with how much power they wield or their bizarre lockstep behavior. When fellow Earthling Jon Stewart ends up with a yellow ring, he and Hal must work together to confront the being who destroyed the original Green Lantern Corps, the last surviving Guardian. So, Jon Stewart's joining the Yellow Lantern Corps. I'm really excited. Um, that's something that we've never seen before. Uh, Jon Stewart has worn uh, the Indigo Ring as well as the Green Lantern Ring as well as the uh, Ultraviolet Ring, but he's never worn a Yellow Lantern Ring. And that's one of the characters in the Green Lanterns that you would never ever really see with a, green, with a Yellow uh, Ring. Um, I'm looking at the cover right now. It looks gorgeous obviously but also with all of the uh, yellow lantern stuff uh there is a cons there's an inconspicuous character uh just off of the shoulder of hal jordan who is our main character in this book and that is sinestro so it looks like sinestro is going to be getting a full-on uh introduction here uh, of course you have kilowog who made an appearance in the last book as well as some other familiar looking lanterns i'm excited really really looking forward to this now heading into film news uh i'm going to talk about a really exciting casting and then just go going to jump into some trailer stuff because we've got lots of trailers in the past week um another casting choice has been announced for uh matt reeves the batman and that is peter sarsgaard as he's been prone to do for the last month or so uh, matt reeves revealed this in a tweet showing a gif of peter with the uh caption hi peter and it's basically just a caption of him waving into a uh, a window though it's really interesting because normally with these reveals um matt reeves has been basically like spelling out for us who they're playing that's how we got the announcement for alfred uh that's how we got the announcement for uh, carmine falcone and of course how we got the announcement for riddler now, he didn't really say exactly who Peter Sarsgaard is going to be playing, but one eagle-eyed viewer did point out that in this GIF uh, showing Peter Sarsgaard waving basically at the camera, there is both his face as well as another face reflected in the mirror or in the window. So that's led to speculation that he might be playing Harvey Dent or Two-Face. So I'm down for that. If that's the case, Peter Sarsgaard is a great actor and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does. Now, jumping into all of the trailer stuff. Uh, first off, we got a new trailer for Mulan. Looks great. Um, I like that they're going a different way with the uh, Mulan story. Otherwise, you know, why do it? Because I think as we've seen with both The Lion King and the Aladdin and the uh, Beauty and the Beast adaptations, if you don't change anything, there's nothing really interesting to bring you to watch it. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. Should be a really, really good film. We also got a trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife, which looks to be a new, uh, fresh sequel, reboot, 
uh, by the original creative team behind the movies. Uh, stars Paul Rudd. Looked fun. Um, it also looks very uh, pared down and kind of bare bones. Most of the action is taking place in this small town. So I'm interested. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Ghostbusters reboot, the all-female Ghostbusters reboot in 2016 was divisive. So I'm looking forward to see what they do here. And then finally, my big news of the week, the thing I was the most excited about, was we got a full-on trailer for Wonder Woman 84. I have been waiting for this for a while. Patty Jenkins has made it very clear that the film has been done for a little while and that they regret pushing the film back to 2020. But really, really excited. The, the trailer gets you right in the mood to watch an 80s film uh the soundtrack's great the fashion's great just shot composition the colors i love the colors here they picked a perfect decade to introduce all this color to not just diana's costume but just the world as a whole uh we also got a tease of the um invisible jet of cheetah of maxwell lord played by um uh, pedro pascal who is having a killer year and Overall, I'm just really freaking excited. And it ends with Diana using her lasso to lasso the lightning. I'm just, ugh, I'm really excited about this film. So really looking forward to all that stuff. And that is going to do it for this week's news. Like I said, a packed week of news um, along with the rest of the packed content that we have for this episode. This is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Hey everybody, uh, future Eric here checking in um, just as a little addendum to the news for this week. I guess this is one of the upsides, the positives, I guess, to uh, recording a little late. I have been swamped with auditions this week, which is uh, it's, it's a good problem to have, but it didn't allow me to upload the episode when it usually goes up, so... Even though that's a negative, a positive is that I get to now talk about some of the news that came out on the day of where we usually would re uh, would upload the episode. So a couple quick things, just want to add them on since I wouldn't be doing my due diligence and giving you the news every week if I didn't have the up-to-date stuff. Um, <clears throat> I am also currently recording this uh, in Pitch Black Darkness. The uh, Our power went out tonight and so i am recording this uh as we speak by candlelight i'm feeling very uh 1899 very uh red dead redemption i've been playing that recently um anyway so the news <laughs> uh got away from me for a second but news uh so first off in uh comics news uh we did get an official uh, announcement for strange adventures the next Tom King uh, maxi-series epic with Mitch Jarrods and Doc Shaner. Uh, we did know it was coming sometime in 2020, but we didn't know exactly when. So we got the announcement on Twitter that Strange Adventures number one arrives on March 4th, 2020. Uh, and it also has a quote here from Tom King, which says... I wanted to tell two stories simultaneously. The story we tell others and the story others tell about us. So I think that's really cool. I'm really looking forward to it. Should be a good time. Uh, then in film news, uh, we got a trailer for In the Heights. Really, really excited about that. That is the uh, music, the very first like big musical from Lin Manuel Miranda before uh, Hamilton kind of broke 
every single record ever. Uh, so I'm really excited about it. The film looks great. The visuals are stunning. Uh, Anthony Ramos is going to absolutely kill it. And I'm really looking forward to that film. And then we also got some announcements from DC. Not only are they in- announcing uh, comics, they're also announcing films. So <clears throat> along with uh, some announcements uh, or we got a trailer for another trailer for uh, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, basically. Uh, we also got a slate. So we have an official uh, DC film slate heading into 2022. And it goes like this. So on February 7th of 2020, we're getting Birds of Prey. On June 5th of 2020, we're getting Wonder Woman 84. The next year, 2021, on June 25th, we are getting The Batman. And two months later, on August 6th of 2021, we're getting The Suicide Squad. And then on December 22nd of 2021, we're getting The Black Adam. Uh, (laughs) It's not The Black Adam. Um, But the big ones that were announced this uh, this week were three films slated for 2022. Uh, Shazam 2 is coming out on April 1st of 2022. The Flash is finally coming out on July 1st of 2022. We'll see if that happens, though. Uh, and then finally, Aquaman 2 is coming out on December 16th of 2022. So um, that is it for the news, the updated news. And now we are going to roll right on into the main course, the entree, if you will, of the episode, which is the top 10, my top 10 comics of the 2010s. So looking back on the 2010s as a whole, just when you're looking strictly at comics, the whole landscape changed over the course of this decade. I mean, at the beginning of this decade, we were looking at uh, the birth of Flashpoint. Uh, Marvel was really starting to kick into high gear with both its comics as well as its films. Uh, The Marvel landscape, just on its own in the last 10 years, has completely changed. I mean... The MCU having such a profound influence on the comics, so much so that a lot of the uh, long-standing characters that inspired the versions in the MCU now have more or less shifted to match up with those characters because they're more, uh, I guess they have a broader mainstream appeal, but just in the comics themselves, characters have gone all over the place. There have been stories about old man characters, year ones. We've seen uh, the rise and fall of certain characters, certain characters, certain villains becoming heroes, certain heroes becoming villains, all over the place across all of comics. And this was a really, for me, a defining decade in my reading as a comic book fan. My tastes changed, the books that I enjoyed changed, Uh, the characters that I enjoyed changed, and I discovered new characters that I didn't think I was going to really enjoy. And I overall just fell in love with so many different comics in the past 10 years that it was hard to nail down just 10 for this list. But um, 
I've done a lot of soul searching. I have looked inward towards my heart and as a comic book fan. Um, and I found the 10, for me, my top 10, my favorite comics of the last decade. I'm going to preface this. Um, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna try to go as spoiler free as possible. Uh, if it doesn't happen, I'm sorry. Uh, but I do want you, if you haven't read any of these books, to go out and read these books because they are absolutely worth your time. Um, I also am going to say that this is in no particular order. Um, I. It was hard enough to get it pared down to 10. It would be, I think, damn near impossible for me to actually rank these from best to worst. So uh, this list is in no particular order. Um, there's no real, um, this is better than this uh, about these. These are just 10 comics that I loved and that I think are going to stick with me as we head into the next decade. So starting this off um, is a comic that I have talked about a lot on this podcast. And I mean, like, a lot. <laughs> and that is Superior Spider-Man. Um, I'm including both the original run by uh, Dan Slott, Christos Gage, as well as uh, various artists that absolutely knocked it out of the park, along with the second, uh, the sequel series, uh, which was written solely by Christos Gage with art by Mike Henderson. Uh, this story was just incredible. Uh, I talked before about... About villains becoming heroes, and I think the best version of that story was really in this book. Uh, we've had other stories like that throughout this decade. Uh, infamous, infamous Iron Man comes to mind as just one example of Doctor Doom becoming uh, the world's Iron Man after the death of Tony Stark. Uh, but for me, really, this uh, this story tops them all because this was the. This was the rise, the fall, and the redemption of Otto Octavius. Uh, Spider-Man 800 ended off with um, Otto pulling off his greatest uh, greatest victory over Peter Parker in that he, in his dying body, was able to switch his mind with that of Peter Parker, which forced Peter Parker to die in Otto's former body and Otto to live within Peter's young powered one. Uh, throughout this, throughout the initial series, we got to see uh, how Otto changed Peter's life, sometimes for worse, sometimes for better. Uh, the the interactions that he would have with most of Peter's supporting cast, especially uh, MJ, were always a treat to read. And then he really developed this great romance with uh, Anna Marie Marconi. I absolutely adore their relationship. Um, everything about it, just from uh, just from a, uh, a a character perspective, both of them very similar interests uh anna challenged him in ways that he hadn't been challenged before and also for me and this is just an observation from one comic book fan's perspective but um anna anna marie is someone that i could never see peter parker proper being interested in if only for physical attributes uh, and that sucks. That sucks just as an idea because Peter Parker's always paired up with these gorgeous supermodel-looking girls, and he's never really dated somebody who looked like Anna Marie. And 
her being a little person, um, really her focus on her mind is what made Otto fall in love with her. And the fact that he was able to um, love every single part of her in a way that I don't think Peter would really made for a nice twist on the typical uh, Peter Parker romance problems. Um, I loved their relationship. I loved how it grew and how it blossomed. Uh, we also got to see a couple different uh, new Spidey suit designs. Uh, I'm a sucker for that classic superior, which is basically just kind of a uh, darker version of Spidey's normal costume. And of course, everybody knows about the uh, the version 2 Superior Spider-Man. That's the one that everyone kind of associates with that version of the character. Uh, we also got to see him grow as a person. Uh, we also got to see him uh, kind of reestablish himself through Peter. Uh, he got Peter his doctorate. He helped set up uh, Parker Industries. Um, just really improved the quality of Peter's life so that when Peter ultimately came back... Um, he got to benefit off of all the stuff that Otto did. Uh, There's also a great little um, exchange back when Peter initially tried to retake control of his body, um, where Otto kind of got to expose uh, the selfish and untrusting uh, aspects of Peter's identity. And Peter, you know, has, he's one of the most indomitable characters in all of comics, but he is a flawed protagonist. And this interaction really got to show that off where Otto was trying to operate on this girl who had a severe brain, uh, brain injury to save her life. And Peter wouldn't, he would take control of Otto's, you know, his hand cause he didn't trust him. And he, you know, Ultimately, uh, he was saying, you know, I didn't trust you. I didn't think you could do this. And Otto was like, no, that's not the reason. Tell me the real reason. And Peter was like, I was afraid you would find me. And you got to see Peter like scared and really in this place that we don't normally see him on uh, thinking that Otto might be a better, a superior Spider-Man to him. And we get to see, you know, Otto at his height, his... Uh, Siege on Shadowland was really cool. Um, employing minions, you know, the spider bots around the city for constant constant surveillance. Uh, leaving the Avengers, he really paved his own path as Spider-Man. But unfortunately, just like Otto is wont to do, uh, his hubris got the best of him. And he was ultimately defeated by the Green Goblin and realized that he could not beat Norman Osborn. And so in his ultimate act of heroism, he gave up his identity. He erased himself from Peter's body so that Peter could take control and defeat uh, the Goblin. And that day, you know, there's a great moment after Peter uh, retakes his body. He takes uh, his classic costume again, um, has this great interaction with uh the Green Goblin, where he's like taunting him as Otto, and he's he makes something, you know, Peter makes a joke about uh, Green Goblin having like a man purse or something, and Goblin like stops on his glider midair, and he like squints his eyes. He's like, "You," because he knows that Peter's back. Um, but there's this moment after all is said and done where Peter, you know, or Spider Man really is trying to uh, comfort Anna Marie, and she's like, you know. I just want to make sure Peter is okay. He's the loveliest person I've ever met. And uh, Peter realizes that, you know, 
even though they won the day, they still lost, and Anna still lost. And that brings us to um, Spider-Verse, which also helped uh, uh, kind of fill in some of the blanks with uh, Otto, because there's this time where he goes missing for 24 hours, he comes back, and something else has happened, and we get to find out you know, that that was the Spider-Verse. And then following this, um, there's a stint where he is uh, cloned, gets to be the Superior Octopus, and then we get the sequel series, the sequel maxi-series, um, Superior Spider-Man, written by uh, Christos Gage with art by uh, Mike Henderson. And I loved everything about this. The It was one of my favorite. I've talked about it every single time, and it, it would pop up in... Uh, this week's comics countdown the past year but just Otto moving to san francisco him trying to be the west coast spider-man him trying to better his life and better other lives around him was just great and the fact that again what brought his downfall ultimately was um was norman osborne and forced him to realize that he, or you know, forced him to come to this conclusion that he, as the superior Spider-Man, couldn't defeat him, but as Otto Octavius, as Dr. Octopus, he could. So by the end of the book, he resets himself back to before all of his heroics, back to just classic Dr. Octopus, and it really is a tragedy. Um, Otto cannot be a hero because he keeps getting uh, defeated at the height, at the moment that he thinks he's got it all together. So really, really sad. Um, but overall, I love this book. It is fantastic. Uh, both series, both the original series as well as the sequel series, you should absolutely pick up. Next up, we have a book that I only discovered in the in the last like couple of years after people were recommending it to me for years before that, and that is Hawkeye by Matt Fraction uh, with art by David Aha, as well as other various artists. Um, this, or Aja, David Aha, Aja, Aha, I mispronounced your name and I apologize. But this book really was something that ultimately surprised me. I was not expecting a whole lot going into reading the book. I got the, uh, the big omnibus, and I was just blown away by the storytelling here. Uh, Matt Fraction's writing, Aja's... Uh, his art, uh, among the other various uh, super talented guest artists on this book, uh, just told this story about, you know, what goes on when Hawkeye is not doing Avengers business. And his every issue was like a day in the life. Um, every issue starts off with, okay, this looks bad. And I love that aspect of him. This is uh, the stuff that made me fall in love with the character of like Nightwing, a uh, character like Spider-Man, someone who is kind of having to... Uh, improvise on the fly as things are happening around him and having to constantly test and question his uh, his morality his strength and really you know finding the inner strength to uh, stand up for what he believes in and Hawkeye is just saga of him versus this like uh, tracksuit wearing Russian mob um is just so good uh, and it introduces characters like pizza dog it really got me into uh kate as a hawkeye i wasn't a huge fan 
of Kate as Hawkeye before I read this book, but she absolutely knocks it out of the park here, and I can't wait for the Hawkeye TV show, even though it's kind of questionable now with all the Jeremy Renner stuff going on. Um, I just adore everything about this book. If you want something that's uh, both a great read and also really nice and easy and light reading, uh, most of the issues are self-contained stories. There isn't kind of an overarching uh, plot, but each book is basically, again, just like a, a slice of life, a day in the life of Hawkeye when he's not doing Avengers stuff. Uh, this also is probably my favorite version of the character. This is where he um, becomes partially deaf and has to learn sign language. Uh, this is also where um, he gets, I think, my favorite version of him, where he's like, He's just wearing like the t-shirt and jeans and he's constantly covered in like band-aids just from all of the scuffs and scrapes that he gets throughout his his uh, his odyssey. But I I just really, really love this. It's a great story about Hawkeye trying to just do the best he can day to day. And sometimes it's good enough, sometimes it's not, but he's always trying his best. So I cannot stress enough how much i love this book it is collected in a full omnibus and i would recommend that that's how i read the series and it's something that i think you should absolutely pick up uh next up we have a book that i also um had to wait until it was collected into a uh a full trade before I could read all of it, but that is because one of the issues sold out immediately and I couldn't find it. Uh, that series is Multiversity, uh, written by Grant Morrison with uh, various artists, including uh, Ivan Race, um, Doug Monkey, among others, uh, Frank Quitely. Uh, just a fantastic look at what a multiverse really is. Each issue out of this story takes place on a different Earth, and you see how some of them are wildly different, how some of them are similar. Um, he finally gets to tell the story of the, um, of the original uh, inspiration for the Watchmen characters, Blue Beetle, Question, among others. Um, I loved that. I love the book, uh, or I love the story that I ultimately missed out on when I was uh, looking for the single issues, and that's you know, Nazi uh, Nazi Superman with Over Overman, and you know, what if? Uh, whoops, smacking the mic here. Uh, <laughs> um, what if you know Clark Kent's um, or Kal El's uh, space pod landed in the you know occupied nazi germany like i loved all these different slices of life all of these different pieces there's a great issue where it shows like the next generation of heroes kind of like millennial superheroes where they're all you know more focused on fame than actually like fighting villains and all of the old school heroes the only way that they find use is like reenacting their best battles every year really really sad um, but I, overall, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a, uh, it was strange. It was a book that I wasn't sure how to feel about with each issue, but as I've gone along and I've just, you know, read it, I've probably read 
read it through at least three or four times since I got the trade. And it's just, it's a book that really sticks with you, especially with all of the crises that have been happening, all of the multiverse implications. Uh, there is a tie-in with another another series that is on this list that I loved. And um, overall, it's just, if you want a introduction to what the multiverse is like and how um how kooky it can be at times i would say definitely pick up multiversity if nothing else it is through and through from cover to cover a grant morrison story so uh take that as you will next up we have um a book that i was i i was uh really surprised by this book. It was um, something that I didn't put a whole lot of stock in when I first read it. I actually initially read this uh, all online. I got a bootleg copy um, that I downloaded of the entire um, of the entire run. All, I think it's 35 issues in total. Um, but after I read it through, it was one of the first, I think it was one of the first series I read from start to finish uh in this decade and i ended up absolutely loving it and that is uncanny x-force written by rick remender with uh, various artists including uh Jerome pena um asad ribic among others and i just oh man i don't think i've loved an x book this entire decade as much as i've loved uncanny x-force um Hoxpox was very close uh hickman's x-men has been just a revelation uh going through the entire uh, house of x powers of 10 uh book was really just mind-blowing every single week but the story of these seemingly irredeemable mutants having to find their way while doing the things that publicly the X-Men and mutant kind can't be seen doing uh, was just so good for me reading Uncanny X-Force. Uh, it's a it's a team that I don't think uh, would be too difficult to adapt or translate into live action. So it's uh, with maybe, maybe the exception of Phantom X. That's a tricky one. So it's Phantom X, Psylocke, Archangel, uh, Deadpool, and Wolverine core characters just those five and it is oh man it's so good like the very first uh arc involves them trying to uh stop the rebirth of apocalypse and there is an action that phantom x takes during this uh, initial arc that sets the tone for the entire rest of the book and we start you know jumping through time jumping through realities they revisit the age of apocalypse storyline which was my first exposure to x-men comics and i just i can't think of a more perfect uh final arc and final issue in an x-men series than i have with uncanny x-force um just a quick uh, honorable mention because it almost took the spot here. Uh, Wolverine and the X-Men by Jason Aaron uh, was right there. It was neck and neck between these two. 
But um, I just overall, I love the story that Uncanny X-Force told, uh, pushing forward the narratives of all of the characters involved, as well as putting them in situations that some of them have never even been in before. And this was really kind of the first book that made me kind of stop and look at Deadpool in a new way. Uh, I think in the last, especially in the last like five years, Deadpool has become something of a cult of personality into himself. And having that said... Um, it's kind of hard to be a fan of Deadpool because you see a lot, and I, I'm not doing a complete generalization, but among most, not all, but most of the Deadpool fans that I've run into, they're really just obnoxious and they just like him for the same reason that they like um, Rick and Morty. Like, it's just like, oh man, this guy just, you know, it says fuck a lot and like, you know, shoots people, there's no consequences. And it's like, that's not the core of the character, I don't think. Maybe, you know, it is, and I'm completely wrong, but this book really got to the heart of who Deadpool is, and this book made me a fan of Deadpool. So, um, that's that's another one that I love. I absolutely, um, I absolutely recommend this. If you're looking for, if you're on an X-Men high after all the Hickman stuff, and you're looking for something to... Uh, scratch that itch i would definitely definitely recommend this uh next up we have an event that kind of kicked off the big boom for uh comics going into this decade and that is flashpoint uh written by jeff johns with art by andy kubert this was this story is so interesting to me because it wasn't supposed to be as big as it became uh when jeff johns was putting this together it wasn't supposed to be this you know universe altering thing it was supposed to be just like a self-contained you know flash story that you know be oh something interesting to talk about as we continued on with you know the world post final crisis with the whole status quo that they had set up but dc comics decided like no this is going to be our hard reboot of the entire dc universe we're going to use flashpoint to do it and uh basic premise behind flashpoint if you haven't heard of it before even though I'm sure you, even if you've never read it, you know the basis behind it. Uh, Barry Allen basically goes back in time to uh, save his mom from being killed, and that one act causes ripple effects throughout the timeline. And so he wakes up in a world where uh, Superman is nowhere to be seen. The premier hero in the U.S. is Cyborg. Uh, Batman is a gun-toting maniac. And uh, the world is on the brink of nuclear war. And there is a war, another war going on with uh, Atlantis and Themyscira. So this is like the darkest or the worst timeline before uh, Dark Knight's Metal and the Dark Multiverse stuff came in. But um, this spawned a whole lot. Uh, the Thomas Wayne Batman from this... Oh, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> the Thomas Wayne Batman from the story ended up being far more uh, important and impactful on the uh, greater DC universe than I think anyone really expected. And um, his influence is felt even today in the current Tom King... Uh, current tom king batman run you know we're going on eight years since that happened and uh he's still kicking uh, a lot of the themes here as well you know barry allen going back in time it's been adapted in the flash tv show it has its own um cartoon with cartoon film which i think really uh pairs it or pairs it down so that it's a bit more digestible and if you want something that doesn't have to um 
fill as many or check as many boxes and fill as many blanks as uh, you know rebooting an entire universe. And you want something that's a little bit more, um, I would say, uh, easier to digest. The movie is really, really good. Uh, the art design in that film is kind of like hit or miss for me, but the film is really good. And they had really good material to go off of with this story. So I absolutely recommend it. It is what kicked off the current DC status quo as we see it today. From Flashpoint to the New 52 to Rebirth to wherever the hell we are right now. Um, this is definitely the book that kicked that all off and if you are a comic historian in any sense of the word like myself uh, this is definitely a book that you want to have not just under your belt but also on your shelf so next up i'm gonna jump here to another big event that happened uh, this one happened four years later than flashpoint and was another universe altering event and that is marvel's secret wars uh, written by jonathan hickman with art by Asad ribbick um, this book was more of a soft reboot for the marvel universe rather than flashpoint's uh, hard reboot with the new 52 uh, but this kind of essentially became uh, Marvel's Crisis on Infinite Earths, where it took the multiverse, completely destroyed it, and made it just one Earth. Um, this The stuff leading into this uh, Hickman's Avengers run is also fantastic. It is a seminal uh, Avengers run. Anything, I think, at this point that, Mar that uh, Hickman has touched when it comes to Marvel, Fantastic Four, Avengers, now X-Men, is must-read. Um especially now that it's all collected like Hickman has kind of a slow burn writing style and it's very hard to be invested um, until you kind of get a you kind of get like a um, uh, you kind of get a hint or a uh, perspective on what exactly he is moving towards but the whole uh, New Avengers, Secret Avengers, uh, Illuminati, Time Runs Out storyline all led to all of the multiverse being destroyed and Doctor Doom using, you know, unlimited cosmic power to create Battle World, which was basically piecing together the remnants of all of these former um, multiverse or all of these former, uh, all basically the entire multiverse, taking bits and pieces from each Earth and just combining them into one world. Uh, we also got to see Doom at pretty much, I would say, the height of his uh, megalomaniacal uh, self. Also, him basically being the god of this world, uh, rewriting a lot of history, him being the husband of Sue Storm here, Reed Richards basically not existing. Um, it was really, really cool to see, and it was one of those first events that I remember picking up every issue and being like, God, I can't wait until the next issue um especially because i think nowadays especially in the last you know five six seven years uh events when it comes to comics both dc and marvel can be very hit or miss i was one of the people who picked up every single issue of justice league versus suicide squad and i re i regret it every day i regret it every day but this book was something that I looked forward to and every single issue surprised and delighted me. I cannot recommend this enough, especially if you are a reader who is looking to get into uh, Marvel Comics and trying to see like, oh, what's the, you know, what's the status quo? This is a great 
this is a great, I would say, starting point. It might not be a great jumping on point. You'd need to know some stuff going into it. But if you want to start from like the current Marvel status quo into today, um, Secret Wars is definitely a great place to start. And again, it's Jonathan Hickman writing Marvel. So it is absolutely worth your time. Next up, we have one of my favorite runs of the entire, I think, really the entire decade. And that is Scott Snyder's run on Batman. I love the shit out of Scott Snyder's Batman. And while um, for me this would include his entire New 52 run with Greg Capullo, um, his run with um, Dark Knight's Metal, as well as his uh, current uh, Last Night on Earth book, um, if I had to pick between all of those, I would stick with just that initial New 52 run. Because this really is kind of what I and a lot of other comic book readers kind of associate with modern Batman. Uh, this was the run that introduced us to the Court of Owls. This was the run that introduced us to the concept of the Pale Man from the Joker. Uh, the idea that the Joker could be more than just some you know, wanton criminal. He could be a force of nature. Uh, the idea of really bringing together Batman's uh, greater supporting cast, the Bat family, and making them important while not overshadowing Batman when it comes to his stories, I think is phenomenal. And this also gave us one of my... Uh, one of my favorite Batman stories and something that I think is really underserved, which is uh, Super Heavy. The Batman is Jim Gordon arc after Batman Endgame, where uh, Bruce Wayne supposedly died. Jim Gordon took up the role as a, a GCPD-sponsored Batman. I love that story so much. It is so underappreciated and... Um, no one can change my mind on that. But Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo as a team, you get to see them throughout the book really uh, gel, uh, grow. Capullo's art with Batman just evolves across that entire run into what it is today. Like if you took his first issue of the run, the first issue of uh, Batman New 52, and you paired it up against like uh, Dark Knight's Metal or uh, especially... Um, Last Night on Earth. It almost looks like two completely different books. You got to see Capullo's art who had... And Capullo has been around the block for a while. He's one of the... Uh, one of the artists associated with the character of Spawn. But his art evolving when it came to uh, Batman and DC Comics as a whole really just is incredible to see. Uh, and with that, you get to also see Scott Snyder really grow as a writer as well. Uh, he had cut his teeth with uh, Batman Black Mirror, which was also an honorable mention for this list. Um, but that Batman was Dick Grayson at the time because it was pre-Flashpoint. Uh, and while I love Dick Grayson as Batman, and I think that he's a better Batman than Bruce Wayne, uh, fight me. Um, Scott Snyder's voice for Bruce Wayne really shines, and I would say is even better than his voice for Dick Grayson as Batman. And that's why so many people, even, you know, we're going on, you know, nine, almost ten years from that initial, for, that initial, you know, him taking up the reins of the book, everyone kind of looks at his run as, like, the definitive modern Batman. Like, people look at, you know, Frank Miller, Neil Adams, 
uh, Grant Morrison is those really seminal runs, and people put Snyder's Snyder and Capullo's run right up there. Uh, it was also the has the distinction of being the only New Fifty Two book to retain its uh, creative team completely from start to finish, which I think is a feat in itself. With how many books were canceled right out the gate from New Fifty Two, and how many books switched up uh, creative teams throughout the run to the point that. You know, people who were writing the very first issue of a book at the start of the New 52 were nowhere near it by the end of that book's run in the New 52. So um, I think that's incredible. I think that is really a testament to them and the fact that they've come back for books like Dark Knight's Metal, which I think is another great and fantastic uh, event book. All the way leading into their, I would say, a bit more quiet, uh, a bit more uh, intimate and personal conclusion with uh, Last Night on Earth uh, really speaks to their saga as Batman and how intertwined they are with that character. Uh, since then, Capullo has gone on to do other books. Uh, Scott Snyder has moved on to uh, Justice League and is killing it over there right now. But um, I, I still love seeing, you know, Batman emblazoned on a cover with Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's names attached. So even though Last Night on Earth is supposed to be their final story with Batman, um, never say never. And I will leave it at that. So that is for that one. Next up, we have another seminal run that I think is absolutely worth talking about. And that is Jason Aaron's run on Thor. Uh, Jason Aaron's run... Uh, with artists like Asad Ribic, mainly Asad Ribic and uh, Russell Donnerman, though other various super talented artists uh, contributed throughout the run, um, is just, again, it's a definitive run. You know, we talk about like the Walt Simonson run for Thor and how definitive that is for the classic version of the character. I think for a modern audience, the Jason Aaron run is going to be hard to top. It's like Jeff John's Green Lantern. Like that is a seminal run that... If you are a fan of that character, you have to read. If you are a fan of Thor, you have to read Jason Aaron's run on Thor. Starting off with God, God of Thunder, uh, with Gore the God Butcher, and all of the crazy wackiness that happens with God Bomb, uh, leading into stuff like... Um, um, original Sin, which completely changed up the status quo of Thor in the Marvel Universe, making him unworthy. Uh, we got to see the rise of Jane Foster's Thor, the mighty Thor. Uh, his run going from th uh, Thor, God of Thunder, into just Thor, into mighty Thor, um, is just one of the greatest and... I think most seamless handoffs of a main character that I've personally seen in all of my years of reading comics. Um, and I, I'm so excited for, uh, Thor love and thunder, uh, purely because they are going to be adapting some stuff from this run. Uh, Russell Donnerman's art is also has to be spotlighted here because he is so good at what he does, and his art paired with Jason Aaron's writing is really what made this book sing. And again, having not just Jane learn how, how to be Thor, uh, all the trials and tribulations that are involved with that, and how she uh, has to learn to 
deal with not just being a hero, but also the fact that every time she would become Thor, it would uh, mess with her cancer treatment. Because at the same time that she is fighting Frost Giants and joining the Avengers, Jane Foster is also fighting cancer. And that that provided a lot of really real and emotional moments with Jane Foster because you knew that there was a ticking clock on her. You knew that she was only going to have this uh this time this time as thor in the sun you know for a limited time and i think that set itself apart from other you know other and i'm using uh quotations here for podcast listeners um other uh temporary handoff runs like a superior spider-man like dick grayson's run as batman uh where you kind of expected there to be a ticking clock and it's like oh it's just it's gonna change back to whatever sam wilson is captain america um it's gonna go back to the status quo eventually uh with this they said right up front look there is a limited time on this so we are going to make the most of it and they told some wonderful stories uh involving like the shiar gods you know having uh jane have to face off against malekith and building all the way up into this grand um this grand finale with the war of the realms uh Finding the, the death of the mighty Thor is one of my favorite stories uh, in the past decade. You know, watching as Jane comes to term with her mortality and knows that she can't be Thor forever, as well as Thor essentially becoming worthy once again, to a certain extent. He really doesn't become worthy again until War of the Realms. But watching the redemption of this of Odinson as well as Jane's journey as Thor makes us one of the greatest and most complete comic runs that I have ever read and I absolutely implore you to pick this book up. Next up we have a book that really um uh really affected me on a personal level and on an emotional level. Uh and that is Mr. Miracle. Uh, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it because we actually did an episode all about this run. If you have not listened to it, if you want to go back and listen to it, check it out. It's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done on the podcast. I love it so much. Um, but this book for me really was um, uh, transformative and really spoke to me, not just as a comic book fan, but also as a person uh, because a little bit, about me that might be you know too much information or whatever but um i deal with anxiety a lot and i deal with depression a lot and i was never a i was never super interested in uh mr miracle or the new gods beyond like oh dark side's really cool um but this book really uh turned that all around for me by showing off a character in Scott Free who is someone known for escaping and is unable to escape his anxiety and his depression and his fear. Um, and I absolutely love everything about that character. This book, I, across the 12 issues that this book um, encompasses, and I definitely recommend picking up the trade for this, uh, I cried almost every issue. I just, this book really touched me on an emotional level. And, you know, things have been said throughout the last couple of years about Tom King and his writing, um, his supposed mistreatment of certain characters. And I will be the first to admit that he has not 
knocked it out of the park every single time. But I think with Mr. Miracle, he really not only knocked it out of the park, but then, you know, sent everybody home too. So he was, I don't know what I was trying to do with that sports metaphor, but I, I just think this is a book that is going to last. Uh, we hear these stories all the time. Uh, stories like The Dark Knight Returns, uh, Batman Year One, stories that recontextualize the character that they are spotlighting and really uh, redefine them for a new generation. I think this book, Mr. Miracle, really does that, not just for me, but for a lot of readers. Um, and I, it, this really turned me on to Tom King as a writer. Uh, this gave me hope and faith and got me really really freaking excited to uh read his batman run uh had me go back and read his vision i just this book really kicked off my love for tom king's personal take on characters and even though again he's you know sometimes he swings and he knocks out of the park sometimes he swings and it's a big old miss but um i will always give tom king a chance because of what he did for me as a reader and as a person with mr miracle so again Definitely check out our episode on that. I go it way further, way more in depth on this book, and I absolutely think that you should check it out if you haven't listened to it already. But this brings us to our 10th and final book, a book that I was more excited than I can probably explain to pick up. You know, we've talked about we've talked we've talked about a lot of stuff today. But <laughs> but um we I've mentioned before that there were certain books on this list that I was not expecting a whole lot out of and ended up loving. Uh, this book I knew I was going to love and loved it even more than I expected it to. And that is Superman Rebirth. Uh, the entire Rebirth run by uh, Pete Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. Uh, fresh off of their run with Batman and Robin, uh, they jumped ship from the Bat family to the Super family. And... Um, this is my Superman book. This is my Superman run. Um, and I will never forgive Brian Michael Bendis for ending this run. Um, I know it's not all him, but I absolutely adore this book. Uh, this picks up right after the, um, the events of the death of Superman, which killed off the New 52 Superman, uh, as well as kind of spinning out of Convergence, where the uh, post-crisis... Superman, the pre-New 52 Superman, um, escaped Convergence with Lois and their baby boy and uh, have kind of been silently living out their lives in solitude uh, on a farm under assumed names. Um, check out uh, Superman. I, I believe it's Superman, Lois, and Clark. It's a uh, book by, I believe it was Dan Jurgens with Lee Weeks. I love that book, and that is a great uh, prelude into this book because after the um, after the demise of the new 52 Superman the world needs a Superman so this uh, older wiser um, uh, more classic version of the character steps up to be Superman for this new world and I Oh, I love it so much. Uh, this also introduced us to John Kent, who is a character who I have a lot of feelings about. I think um, as a kid, he had the most potential out of really any character that has been introduced in the last you know three or four years. And what uh, DC has done to him in the last two years, I will uh, forever shame and shout. 
Uh, I love everything about this book. The the two, the just the story of the Kents living in uh, living in Smallville, learning to be a family, um, as well as uh, kind of trying to juggle this life of a secret identity, as well as trying to be the Superman for this brave new world, as well as trying to teach their half Kryptonian son how to. Uh, how to use his powers. Uh, the father-son dynamic is amazing here. You don't get that a whole lot in comics, and as uh, someone who loves that kind of storytelling, that father-son dynamic who, you know, they don't always have the answers, but they um, they seem to come to an understanding. I have had conversations with, um, with fathers who love this book because it reminds them of um, their relationship with their son. I've talked to people who love this book because of, you know, their perspective through John and being able to, you know, see where he's coming from, from this enormous shadow that is looming over him. Like, imagine growing up in a world where your dad is Superman. Like, how do you live up to that? And being able to uh, have both of those perspectives in this book and making them work and not feel like they step over each other too much is amazing. Uh, Doug Monke also does a great job with certain arcs, uh, bringing back one of my favorite Superman villains, Manchester Black. And I, I just love it so much. Um, so this book, again, for me, this is my definitive Superman book. Um, I did really enjoy certain aspects about the New 52 run. Uh, Morrison's Action Comics, I thought, was uh, fresh and new. I also loved uh, Aaron Cuter's, Aaron Cuter and Greg Pak's run on Action Comics. And then the uh, Jeff Johns, John Romita Jr. run on Superman I thought was really great. Uh, the Truth story where he was uh, depowered, basically back to his original power set, I absolutely loved and really paved the way for this story to take place. So uh, overall, I absolutely love this book. As a Superman fan, it had to be on the list. And with how much I loved it, I have this entire run. Um, I At some point, I think I'm going to grab the collections just so I can read them on the regular. Uh, but I have the entire run on this from start to finish. Um, and pretty much the only you know, long-standing comic runs I can say that about that I have from the beginning of the run to the end of the run is uh, this and then also uh, Batman Rebirth, Tom King's run. So uh, those two were very uh, big runs for me. And even though Tom King's Batman run didn't make the list, very high. Honorable mention, absolutely, for all of the stuff that they did for uh, Batman as a character on a personal level. But I just, I absolutely adore uh, Tomasi and Gleason's Superman. And I think it is a Superman story for the ages. Uh, really recontextualizing Superman's role, not just as a hero, but as a father. And it's a story that we don't get to see a whole lot. So to recap... Looking back on a decade, the 2010s, my top 10, my favorite 10 books of the last decade, uh, just going from my written list here, uh, Superior Spider-Man run, the Fraction Hawkeye run, uh, Scott Snyder's Batman run, uh, Flashpoint, Uncanny X-Force, Secret Wars, uh, 
Jason Aaron's Thor run, Multiversity, Mr. Miracle, and rounding out the list, the Tomasi Gleason Superman. So that is it. That is my list as we look into the 2020s. A new decade is upon us. Uh, we're going to start to see, I'm sure, even more seismic changes across both uh, Marvel, DC, Image, um, everywhere so i'm really looking forward to it i hope you enjoyed the uh, look back at the last 10 years of comics and i cannot explain how excited i am to look forward and hopefully do another episode just like this uh talking about the best comics of the 2020s and even though it's a little bittersweet now that the decade is over and we are wrapping up and kind of looking back on the comics that inspired us uh pissed us off, really uh, changed our perspective on things. Uh, there was a lot of formative comics in this last decade and comics that I think uh, really influenced me, not just as a comic reader, but as a person. And I can't wait to see what the 2020s bring. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time! We have finally made it. This is your weekly review, and it's here. We are at Crisis. Crisis on Infinite Earths, parts 1 through 3, dropped this past week. Pretty much every single day. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, man. So, so good. So, I've decided, since unlike usual uh, weekly reviews, this is going to be giant-sized, I'm going to be tackling each episode individually, reviewing each of them as I go. I've got my notes queued up here, so we're going to be talking about all of it. So strap in, get ready. Uh, this is going to be a long one, so I'm really excited about this, though. So, chapter one... Uh, opens up on the Supergirl episode. Chapter 1 kind of gives us a quick rundown narrated by the Monitor, uh, giving us a kind of a breakdown on what the multiverse is, how it was created, etc., etc. And then it starts immediately just destroying Earths. Uh, starts up with uh, Earth-89, which is the Michael Keaton Batman uh, universe. Great little cameo there. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Red skies and everything. Then it, you know, that world's gone. Then it jumps to Earth-9, which is apparently Titans. So Titans is now gone. So good news if you didn't like the first or second seasons. They're done. Uh, then it jumps to Earth-X and the Ray. I was really sad about this because I was really looking forward to the Ray showing up. Um, but looks like Earth-X is gone. And then it ends on Earth-66 with former Robin Dick Grayson, played by Burt Ward, exclaiming, Holy crimson skies of death! And I, I loved that. I loved it so much. It was so good. So, already starting off, worlds are dying. Um, red skies are everywhere. Worlds are being destroyed by the antimatter wave. Which brings us to Earth-38. Specifically... Argo City. For those of you who haven't been following up with uh, Supergirl or watching it, 
Argo City is essentially the last remaining bastion of Kryptonians. It's essentially like a new Krypton. And uh, during last uh, year's uh, crossover Elseworlds, Clark revealed to Kara that Lois was pregnant and that they were going to go to Argo City to uh, raise the child. So we catch up with them here. They've been pretty much absent through the rest of Supergirl last season and through Supergirl this season so far. And we catch up with Clark, Lois, and baby John! I don't know if they ever actually like name him, but um, really excited about it. Really excited about it. So, uh, Red Skies show up um, on... It's basically like eating its way through the universe. Uh, Kara's mom, Allura, gets uh, baby John into a rocket ship. And they send it away as soon as uh, Argo is destroyed. So, John... I don't know if they ever call him John. I'm just going to call him John. Uh, escapes through a wormhole. Uh, basically, baby John in this... Uh, in this Kryptonian escape pod, just zaps out of there. Argo is destroyed along with Allura and seemingly Clark and Lois. So we jump to Earth-1 and we find out that uh, it's Crisis. Each of the Arrowverse shows really kind of got themselves together uh, right as Crisis starts. So we pick up with each of their stories right as... Uh, the whole event kicks off, and Harbinger is collecting everybody. So she goes to uh, Oliver and Mia on Lian Yu. She goes to Central City to pick up Barry. She goes to Gotham to pick up uh, Kate, Batwoman. And then she goes to a bar where Ray and Ray Palmer and Sarah Lance, uh, the Adam and White Canary, respectively, are playing a pub trivia game. And she picks them up. Everybody is brought to Earth-38. Uh, we find out that uh, Harbinger, along with the Monitor, saved Lois and Clark. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, Harbinger has basically brought all of these heroes to Earth-38 because Monitor wants them to make their last stand there. And it felt like weird to me that we were already like, oh, this is it. This is where we make our stand. When we've definitely got a lot of Earths left. But neither here nor there. Um, they are tasked with defending a quantum tower, which ripped straight out of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Love the design. And basically, this quantum tower is going to, uh, basically shield the Earth from the antimatter wave. But, since the anti-monitor knows that about the quantum towers, he's going to send his shadow minions to go attack it. So they're basically there to defend the tower. Uh, meanwhile, they also find out through tracking uh, John's trajectory through his uh, escape pod that he somehow went through a wormhole and landed on Earth-16 in 2046, which, if you have been a long time uh, Arrowverse watcher you remember that was from uh, the very first season of Legends of Tomorrow where uh, Connor Hawk was the current Green Arrow and Oliver uh, had his arm ripped off so yeah good times so uh, basically Lois uh, Sarah and Brainiac 5 tasked themselves with going to rescue John while um, pretty much everybody else is focused on either A defending the tower or B evacuating as many people off of Earth-38 as possible. Um, K 
Kara also has this really great scene with Clark where they're talking about the legacy of Krypton. Um, Tyler Hoechlin has been is just doing some of his best work in these crossovers, and I really, really dig it. Um, and he's basically just like you know feeling powerless, like he's Superman, but he wasn't able to save Argo. So Kara kind of gives him the pep talk, like Krypton's legacy is its people. So it's it's that whole you know as God is not a place, it's a people. So. I'm assuming this is basically kind of building up for the people of Earth-38 to migrate and begin living on Earth-1. But a big thing for me here and a big thing for a lot of us was uh, in preparation for this battle, uh, Oliver gives me her own green arrow costume. So it looks kind of stripped down. It's a lot darker than I kind of expected for her to be like the green arrow, but... I'm hoping tweaks are going to happen throughout either this crossover or the rest of Arrow, and we're going to see um, this really, like, kind of take on its own uh, superhero identity. And then um, something happens, but we're, we're going to get to it. Uh, so we're going to um, Earth-16, following wi- following up with Lois, uh, Sarah, and Brainiac 5. They find Old Man Oliver, and you find out that for him on Earth-16... Um, Sarah never left. Sarah never made it off Land U, which kind of goes against the original 2046. Um, so, I mean, obviously it doesn't mean a whole lot because this Earth is going to be going the way of the dinosaurs anyway, but I thought it was really interesting how, um, this previous, uh, I guess this previous setting that we've seen where Oliver... You know, in the first season of Legends, like, remembers Sarah being Black Canary and all this stuff. Here, it's not remembered at all. Here, this Oliver is um, kind of, like, on his own and kind of, like, crazed. Uh, but anyway, I thought it was interesting. They're able to rescue uh, John because when the pod crashed on Earth-16, Oliver found the baby and was taking care of it, uh, taking care of him. And then... Uh, we get this really sweet moment, and I I should have known, because um, Sarah essentially get, gets to say her goodbyes to Oliver, just not her Oliver. She says goodbye to uh, Earth-16 Oliver, old man Oliver, and uh, they jump back to Earth-38. Meanwhile, at, uh, at the tower, everyone gears up. They're going to defeat the shadow creatures. Love the designs of them. They look ripped. They basically just look like they're ripped straight out of the comics, which I love. So basically this huge throwdown. Everything's kind of going wrong. Um, so I'm really excited about it. This uh, It's a great little scene. Like first, you know, you start off with um, the kind of, I guess, the more straight level heroes. Uh, defending against the shadow creatures while Superman and Kara are trying to turn the quantum tower back on because it gets turned off. Uh, so they're using like their heat vision to because there's like solar panels on top. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. But um, so they're kind of off the board. Flash is doing his Flash thing, and uh, so everybody's kind of split up but they all reunite at the top of the uh quantum tower but unfortunately the tower is breached the antimatter wave is coming and uh the evacuation efforts are on so they're able to uh i guess 
and I must have missed this at some point, but um, apparently Brainiac, uh, Brainiac 5 still had one of the big old Legion ships. So they're able to get, I think they said 3 billion people from uh, Earth-38 onto this ship, and they're able to escape through a breach to Earth-1. But um, the Monitor basically calls it off as they're losing, and he's like, we gotta get out of here, we gotta go. And Oliver's just like, no, not yet, so uh, Monitor starts like blinking people out, um, basically forcing them to retreat, essentially. And so... Um, it uh it sucks so <laughs> uh we also um find out we, quick side note um the efforts to open up a breach to get all of the people off of earth 38 to earth 31 was kind of a combined effort between uh lena and alex liked their scenes um lena's still still after all these seasons she's still kind of stiff for me but um i did like the banter that she had with alex so enjoyed that uh but oliver is basically makes his last stand he shoots uh the monitor with his like shock arrow to disable him so he can't force oliver to retreat along with the other heroes and oliver is just throwing down with all of these shadow creatures this is moment where and it got me it really got me oliver is just slinging arrows left and right and suddenly he reaches back and he's out and I can't remember the last time we did a moment where Oliver ran out of arrows. But, like, at that moment, I'm like, oh, no. Are they going to kill him now? They're going to kill him now? So I was like, oh, oh, it got me. It really did. So Oliver, like, drops his bow, and he just runs at these shadow creatures. And then it kind of cuts away, which sucks, because I kind of wanted to see him make his last stand. But just the implications, the scene of him running out, of his arrows was really really cool so all of them are basically back into uh earth one the monitor is like letting everybody know hey this is what's going on um we need to figure out basically like we need to figure out a battle plan here so uh they then bring in oliver who is just trashed they're in i believe the bunker and um it was really sad because like uh oliver is basically just messed up um and then the implication of course is that earth 38 is destroyed so all of them are just like shoot like we lost so this sucks um they're all just kind of like laying there like they don't know what to do oliver kind of says his goodbyes to everybody and then he dies he dies in the first hour like i was oh blew me away i was like if they stick to this um the balls on dc and the cw of course we would see that uh that didn't exactly stick but in this hour one i thought it was really cool it was a great um great point to uh cut off um the monitor even says he's just like you were not supposed to die this soon you're not supposed to die here the course of history has changed so the outcome for a crisis has changed all bets are off nobody is safe we don't know what's going to happen next um nash also shows up as pariah of course to everybody to let them know like hey Things are bad. The anti-monitor is basically going to wreck everybody. So, um, light seeing him. And then Oliver had this really sweet moment at the end with uh, with Mia where he said, keep me in your heart. 
And I loved that. It was really, really great. And then he died. So the first chapter ends with basically like all bets are off. We don't know what's going to happen next. And we roll into hour two, which was my personal favorite out of all three chapters. Chapter two was mine. Just I loved it so much. So um, chapter two kind of pops up. It's the Batwoman episode with uh, toasting Oliver Queen. I think it's Kara, Sarah, and Kate, uh, a new trinity, in fact, uh, are basically like, they don't know what to do. Everyone's kind of reeling from the death of Oliver. Um, and Harbinger and, uh, and the Monitor are basically like, we need to set up a base of operations. We These worlds are still going. Uh, they're being destroyed as we speak, so we need to figure this out. Um, we need to get the Wave Rider. And Sarah's just like, ah, oh, we can't use the Wave Rider right now. And Harbinger's like, well, we can take any Wave Rider we want across the multiverse. Uh, for the ones that are left, I guess. And so um, Harbinger teleports herself to Earth-74. Don't know the significance of this. Um, they ha they've had, like, either significance from specific earths and then others aren't really um i assumed earth 16 for the 2046 stuff was like because that um i think legends of tomorrow started in 2016 i think um but yeah so they're on earth 74 uh, at least harbinger is and she goes and she finds this wave rider that's kind of out of commission there's beer bottles everywhere and we'll soon learn why uh, but the Wave Rider on this Earth does not have a Gideon AI. Um, this one is Leonard. So uh, Leonard Snart gets to make his appearance, even though he doesn't really get to show up in the crossover. He does get to make an appearance as the AI for the Wave Rider here, which I loved. Um, Leonard Snart, Captain Cold, the legacy on that guy. Super good. And then we find that Mick is the only legend left. He basically, one of them died. It's assumed that it was uh, Leonard still, but then the rest of them retired and Mick has just been kind of living in the Wave Rider, uh, drinking beers and writing his romance novel. So I thought that was really cool, bringing a Mick, maybe not our Mick, but a Mick into the fold and now they have a Wave Rider. Now they have a base of operations. Um, this is when we also find out that the Book of Destiny has been rebuilt by the monitor uh specifically the hard copy has been rebuilt and then they also uploaded a uh like a digital copy into the wave riders mainframe um they also monitor reveals that uh lex luthor is still alive and he's been keeping him uh just for this crisis we saw that at the end of last season with monitor saved lex luthor because he has some higher purpose but the Monitor gives our remaining heroes a quest. It's basically like we have to find the seven paragons to defeat uh, the Anti-Monitor. And it's kind of without explicitly said that the seven symbols that Nash uh, encountered when he uh, entered the inner sanctum of the Anti-Monitor were the symbols to represent the uh, seven paragons. So we get four paragons listed right away. Uh, Kara from Earth-38 is the Paragon of Hope. Uh, Sarah Lance from Earth-1 is the Paragon of Destiny. And then uh, two more clues are given. Uh, the Paragon of Truth is another Kryptonian who has suffered more than any mortal man could. And the Paragon of Courage is known as the Bat of the Future. And so um, 
basically they're tasked with finding these two remaining uh, paragons and Ray Palmer is to build a paragon detector so that he can uh, locate the other three throughout the multiverse. So after everyone's briefed on this, uh, they find out that Lex has stolen the rebuilt Book of Destiny and has decided that I'm just going to jump across the multiverse killing superman as i please so all of them are on earth 74 right now and they're like okay so we gotta go we gotta figure this out um kara is still really shaken up by the uh not just the destruction of argo but the destruction of her entire entire universe last episode and uh this provided some really great scenes i love the scenes between her and kate uh our world's finest is here like we have we literally have a world's finest uh, on this in this universe, and I really I dig it. I really do. It's you know there's something to be said about you know keeping the classics, Batman, Superman being your world's finest. But I really enjoyed them, and I thought their uh, their scenes were fantastic. So I liked that. Um, basically, Clark, Lois, and Iris were set off to go find uh, Superman this alternate Superman, wherever he may be. And uh, Kate and Kara were tasked with going to find uh, the uh, Bat of the Future, to find the uh, Paragon of Courage. And then a third team, uh, consisting of Barry, Sarah, Mia, and Diggle, want to figure out how to bring Oliver back. Um, Mia is all about this idea of like, let's just toss him in a Lazarus pit. And Sarah's just like, no, that is a horrible idea. <laughs> but, uh, Mia's pretty dead set on it. So they are going to try and, um, they're going to try and figure this out, but they are going to need some help. And that walks in Constantine, uh, Constantine. I loved seeing him. He's great. Uh, Matt Ryan has just, he is that character. So I'm really excited to see him in this. And the whole deal is that the Lazarus Pit is going to revive his body, but then they're going to need uh, Constantine to help uh, reattach his soul to his body. So we're going to see what happens there. Um, our first team goes to uh, Earth-99, that being uh, Kara and Kate, to find the Paragon of Courage. So they go to Earth-99, and they show up at Wayne Manor. And so we get uh, super hunky buff Luke Fox, um, which is fine, I guess. I didn't really have an opinion on it. I haven't, I haven't been really following up on Batwoman as much. Um, I've been catching, like, a little bit here and there, but... Um, I think for me personally, um, both last year and in this crossover, um, Kate has been like at her best here. Her acting is so good, uh, for these crossovers and it kind of makes me sad because she feels really stiff in her own show, which I'm sure is just growing pains and being around other people to bounce off, um, your, uh, your energy really helps, but still, I uh, I think she's doing some of her best stuff in the crossover, and that includes when they find the so-called Bat of the Future, which is 
Kevin effing Conroy. Kevin Conroy finally getting to play a live-action Batman. And not just any Batman. This live-action Batman is a withered, aged, bitter Batman who is using the same kind of exoskeleton as the Kingdom Come Batman, which is why I think all of us thought he was going to be the Kingdom Come Batman. But no! It's it's worse. It's worse than we thought. Uh, this Batman in this universe, not only is he retired, but he was also a stone-cold killer um man this was uh this was kind of this was heartbreaking because uh in this universe bruce killed um it doesn't explicitly state state who but he killed one person or one villain and that just kind of escalated so he started killing more and more until he killed his entire rogues gallery and then was confronted by superman who he also killed we find this out uh because of the trophy memento case where we see like a playing card i think there's riddler's cane free mr freeze's uh, snow globe and then we see clark's glasses oh they're like halfway broken and blood splattered it was uh it was kind of intense so i was uh i was kind of shocked that they went this direction but it also it makes sense because we had to get to the um we had to get to finding out why this Bruce isn't their paragon of courage. And that really helped uh, both Kate and Kara come to terms with that. Um, the confrontation that they had, uh, Kate and Bruce did, was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, Kara accidentally ends up like knocking him back into some like um, electricity or something like that. Some machinery and that... Bruce dies and they leave and they go back to the wave rider and they find out that the the paragon of courage was not the Bruce Wayne of Earth 99 but was in fact Kate Kane Batwoman from Earth 1 uh, monitor explicitly stated that heading to this earth would lead you to the would set you on the path to find the paragon of courage which I guess they needed for Kate had to see what she would become if she continued down a dark path, which I guess has kind of been her arc in her show. So I like this. Like I said, I really like the chemistry between Kara and Kate in this episode. Really well done. And then, as a little mini uh, mini tease, uh, Kara, at the end of their journey, is kind of telling Kate, like, you were really strong. Um we we've got this like we're gonna do this and as she's walking away kate kind of reveals to us the audience that she kept some of the kryptonite that um kevin conroy batman earth 99 batman had and used to defeat superman and it's teasing like uh kate you know is kind of going down that batman path of having contingencies against her allies i dug that i really like that i know it's um kind of riffing off of a batman trope but i dig it and it really um sets up the relationship to be uh the relationship between her and Kara to be just as complicated as uh Clark and Bruce's relationship. Now on the super quest, as I've got it here in my notes, the super quest. Um Clark Lois and Iris are looking for um looking for Superman. So they first go to Earth-75 and they find out that Lex has already been there and he's already killed this Earth-Superman. They then go to Earth-167, number 167, which ends up being the Smallville Earth. I really, really liked that. 
Um, we see Clark, good old Tom Willing Clark, just chopping wood on his farm. Um, Lois, Iris, and Clark, our Clark, show up uh, to try to recruit him, but then they are zapped away by Lex, who has found Smallville Clark. Uh, Lex kind of has some banter with him, uh, which is where Clark reveals that he gave up his powers so that he could be a father, so that he could um, focus on being a father and not have to juggle that with being a superhero. And I kind of, I liked that. I wasn't sure how I uh, felt about it as I was watching the episode, but after the episode, watching it, I watched it a second time, uh, not taking any notes and really just kind of taking in performances and stuff. Um, Thinking about it as well, I like this because the whole... The whole crux of Smallville was showing Clark Kent, not Superman. And at the end of the day, you find out that that's exactly who he stayed. Clark Kent, not Superman. And um, yeah, so he also got to punch Lex in the face before Lex kind of warped out. Um, And I love when uh, Lex is there. Clark walks up to him. He's just like, yeah, you're not Lex. And he just, oh, he's so good. He's so good. And then we get uh, Erica Durance as Lois. She also played Kara's mom, Allura, in the first episode, uh, who died. But seeing Clark and Lois of Smallville together again was really nice. Finding out that they had two daughters together as well was great. Um, and they have this sweet little kind of send-off where uh, Lois is like, you know, our girls you know, made a mess and I can't wait for you to see it. And Clark goes... Well, this looks like a job for us. And I loved that. They basically get to walk off into the sunset before ultimately, of course, their world is destroyed. Um, it sucks because like, it was a great uh, epilogue for them. But uh, taken in context, all the other Earths are being destroyed. So sad. But then we get to Earth 96. Clark, Lois, and Iris are walking into the Daily Planet, and they bump into Brandon Routh as Clark Kent. And I love this. This is, you find out, is the exact same Clark from Superman Returns, who was played by Brandon Routh. And because the Brandon Routh Superman from Superman Returns is essentially Christopher Reeve's Superman, it's bringing Christopher Reeve's Superman all the way from the very first Superman film into the latest crisis. Love that. I love everything about that. Uh, Also, the little um, uh, interactions that he has initially, he bumps into Lois, and immediately they're just smitten with each other, and R. Clark is like, and it's just, it was funny, and then uh, uh, Brendan Routh's Clark, or I'll call him Earth-96 Clark, looks at R. Clark, and he's like, oh, nice classes. And R. Clark's just like, yeah, thanks. And they go into his office and they tell him like what's going on with Lex, like basically jumping from Earth to Earth to kill Superman. And then we find out that uh, Brandon Routh Superman slash Christopher Reeve Superman uh, has not had an easy life uh, after the events of um, of Superman Returns. The Joker came to Metropolis and gassed the entire Daily Planet, killing everyone inside, including Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, and Lois Lane of this world. So he fits the bill for Kryptonian, who has suffered more than any mortal man could endure. And um, it was sad, like, knowing that all of this stuff has happened um, and all the terrible things that has happened to his character... um, it was it was a bummer. It was a real real bummer. So um, 
but they recruit him uh he shows up and he like does this quick change into his superman uniform and he's like let's do this let's fight lex and then uh our our clark suits up as well they're like he's not we're not gonna let him kill you and lex walks in and he's like uh i got tired of killing superman i think it's so much more fun when superman kills superman so then we get a super throwdown between uh brandon routh and tyler hoakland's supermans and i loved it i absolutely loved it they're also like playing the original da, 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 da. the original superman theme oh made my heart happy made my heart sing i love it so much um they're finally able to defeat him after uh, Lois knocks out Lex and they retake possession of the Book of Destiny. Um, Kingdom Come Clark also gets to make a little funny moment where he's just like, uh, you know, this is actually the second time I've gotten nuts and fought myself. Referencing Superman 3 of the Christopher Reeve films. Oh, God. It's, such, it's just so good. Like, as a Superman fan, getting, you know, three, I guess technically four if you want to count the dead Superman, Superman in one episode, I just, oh, it was my favorite. It's my favorite episode out of the three. So then we jump to our third team, that being uh, Barry, Constantine, Sarah, and Mia. They are uh, they're at Earth 18, uh, an Old West Earth, where they run into Jonah Hex pre-scarring pre uh good guy jonah hex he's still kind of a dick um he basically says that the lazarus pit is his property but he's willing to trade it for mia and sarah to give him sexual favors which is awkward as all hell but they kick his ass um take the pit from him and run him off so they dip Oliver into the Lazarus pit. He wakes up, goes crazy like you do, and they knock him out because they, you know, they have to reattach his soul. So we all meet back on the Wave Rider, which um, I love because we get double Brandon Routh interacting with himself, Clark and Ray Palmer. Um, just the two of them in the same frame, you know, Ray being like, do you have a gluten sensitivity too? And Clark's like, not that I know of. And I just, oh, it was so good. Um, uh, Ray finishes his Paragon Detector, which gives us that reveal that Kate is the Paragon of Courage. Uh, Kara is wanting to bring back Earth-38, and so she is, it's, it seems like she is wanting to use the Book of Destiny to do that, and that, of course, gets followed up in Chapter 3. And then our very last scene is Harbinger kind of throughout uh, chapter two she's been kind of getting plagued by headaches and voices and so she teleports to an unknown location and she comes face to face with the anti-monitor and that's where the episode cuts so finally getting our first look at the anti-monitor he looks gross exactly how he should um a dark twisted version of our monitor really dug it again chapter two is my favorite chapter of these three so we head into chapter three which is the flash uh, and we get a quick uh another quick um update with other cameos and other earths uh earth 203 which is the original birds of prey uh series which had a uh, oracle huntress uh an older holly harley quinn after uh, batman was killed um really dug that loved the i was obsessed with that show when it first came out um so getting to see that was really cool um but of course we watch as their earth gets destroyed um earth 73 also gets destroyed we see on a uh 
on a uh, screen that Kara's watching. And uh, pretty soon they tell them that we only have seven Earths left. So um, we got to figure out this. We, we got to figure out what's happening. Back on the Wave Rider, um, we get some backup. So Elongated Man, whose suit is looking uh, mysteriously more purple than red. Um, I'm, I enjoy the purple uh, Elongated Man costume anyway, so I'm okay with that. But uh, Cisco and Killer Frost, basically our team Flash, all show up to help out. Uh, Cisco is basically there to help Ray in the science department. Uh, and Ralph makes this great little holy all-star squadron moment. Just this little like throwaway line. Really, really liked it. Um, so Ray finishes his Paragon Detector with the help of Cisco, and they find out who the final three Paragons are. Now, the Paragon of Honor is is revealed to be John Jones, Martian Manhunter from Earth-38. Uh, the Paragon of Love is Barry Allen from Earth-1. And the Paragon of Humanity is Ryan Choi, also from Earth-1. For those of you who aren't familiar with Ryan Choi, in the comics, he was the second Adam. Uh, he was basically like an intern for Ray Palmer who got his hands on his tech after Ray Palmer disappeared and was tasked with helping to find him. So um, he's also another Asian superhero, which I'm totally down for as an Asian American. Uh, really excited about that. So uh, Ryan Choi doesn't get a whole lot. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, but it's right after this, you know, the final reveal. So all they have to do is find Ryan Choi now because they have all of the other six. Um, and the monitor basically tells everyone like oh hey by the way the anti-monitor is around and he is really messed up so we have to get ready to fight him so um they decide like all right so we need to go find ryan Choi right now so they zap to earth one so they're in orbit around earth when the wave rider is and ray ralph and iris go to find ryan Choi. um they basically they talk to him they tell him like hey the world's ending we need your help and ryan's just like no, I ain't gonna hold my wife and my kid, like, later. And uh, Iris convinces Ryan to join up with the group, and uh, they are going to bring him back to the Wave Rider. Meanwhile, um, Kate and Kara are still trying to figure out what they're gonna do about bringing back uh, Earth-38. Uh, Kara wants to use the Book of Destiny, and that's going to be a problem, but... Uh, Kate tells her, like, you can't do this, like, you don't know what's gonna happen, and then she reveals to Kara, hey, I have this kryptonite, I can stop you if I want to, but I'm going to give it to you, because I trust you. And again, like, having Kate, like, kind of only really trust Kara was really cool. I liked that, I liked that aspect of it. Um, so I'm hoping that they build on top of that. Uh, Kara ultimately gives Kate permission to keep the kryptonite because she trusts her. So I liked that. They paid it off a little too soon for my taste, but um, I still, I, I liked the scene. Uh, then we go over to our next team, which is Constantine, Diggle, and Mia, who are searching for someone to help them get into purgatory so that they can find Oliver's soul and bring him back to re-inhabit his body. And they go to Earth 666. And wouldn't you know it, they run into Lucifer. Lucifer um, has also been a uh, CW show, which is an adaptation of his uh, Vertigo comic. 
I, I loved this. I loved this little moment, how Lucifer and Constantine know each other. Lucifer calls Constantine Constantine, which is technically his canon uh, pronunciation in the comics. Um, so I really like that. Lucifer gives them their end to get into purgatory, and they are going to go rescue Oliver's soul. Meanwhile, uh, Cisco wants to take care of the Monitor. He wants to take this out of the source, and he is given his powers back by the monitor so vibe lives he is uh he's got his powers back and so they go to nash's work site where uh initially he encountered the anti-monitor after hitting the symbols and entering his inner sanctum so uh the og team flash is the team for this so we've got uh flash vibe and killer frost and they are quickly joined by pariah who lets them know like hey this is bad stuff this room here is bad that you're about to enter into. Just be prepared. So they go in um, and they find the antimatter cannon, which has been firing off the antimatter wave. If they destroy this cannon, they can uh, shut off the wave. So they also find that there is a red blur that is powering the cannon, and you find out that this is the Earth-90 Flash. The 90s Flash, played by uh, John Wesley Shipp, the original uh, live-action Barry Allen, loved this. I thought this was great. Apparently, after he was warped away by the Monitor during Elseworlds, he was picked up by the Anti-Monitor and forced into powering the Antimatter Cannon. So they rescue uh, him. They're able to breach him out of his uh, confinement. But uh, Earth-90 Flash basically tells them, you have to put me back on there because uh, the Antimonitor had it so that if I am removed from that machine for any reason, it just self-destructs and destroys everything. So they need to figure that out. Meanwhile, back with the home team on the Wave Rider, we have the Monitor and Lois. Uh, Martian Manhunter and Kingdom Come Superman have been tasked with uh, going to all of the remaining Earths, the seven remaining Earths, to save as many people as they can. We get this great moment where uh, a breach opens up, uh, Kingdom Come Superman drops down, and he hits, you know, he hits the floor out of anger, and the entire Wave Rider shakes. Ah, I love that. I just, ah, so much. Um, he, apparently he wasn't able to save anyone from that Earth before it was destroyed, and he's just, he's, he's angry, he's pissed. Uh, so him and Lois kind of have a heart-to-heart -heart where um, Lois asks him why he added black onto his Superman crest. And in the most Superman moment that I think Brandon Routh has ever had as Superman, he basically tells them, like, because, you know, this black represents the darkness and that no matter what, this ho hope, which is represented by this S-shield, is going to shine through it. It says hope is the light that will lead us through the darkness and i have to hope that i can save as many people as i can and i'm like that's superman like that's superman um i love tyler hoakland's superman he's been fantastic but seeing this kind of world weary superman at like the height of his power i thought was really really cool as well so he is kind of you know he's got the fire lit under him again and he leaves to go try and rescue more people from more earths um back on the cannon or back at the cannon they're trying to figure out how to destroy the uh the antimatter cannon without you know putting uh earth 90 flash back in um 
And that is when we get introduced to a new player. A new player has entered the board. Uh, that is Black Lightning. Jefferson Pierce has finally entered the Arrowverse. Um, I went back and I watched uh, hit the fina the uh, midseason finale for Black Lightning, which uh, was on the same night as this episode. Um, and it was really cool. Like I didn't have a whole lot of context because I admittedly haven't been watching Black Lightning. But um, the episode that he... Uh, that kind of brings him in was really cool and it kind of makes me want to go back and rewatch all the episodes of black lightning um but jefferson immediately is just like where am i because at the end of his uh mid-season finale uh the antimatter wave comes to his earth and he's warped out before everything else is wiped out um i just he's really good like i i i was blown away by jefferson pierce in this episode um, he has a little tussle with the Flash, but Barry is able to calm him down and let him know, like, here's the situation, your Earth's gone, but, like, we have the chance to save other Earths. Um, as this is, like, kind of all going down, more Earths are being destroyed until Earth-1 is the only Earth, the only Earth left. And so uh, they're like, we gotta figure this out. So Earth-90 Flash and Earth-1 Flash go into Flash time, where they're like, okay, we gotta figure this out. Like, we don't know what to do. Like, how are we gonna do this? And uh, Black Lightning basically is, they, they're like, he has to be, if Black Lightning can hold off the uh, power that's coming off of the antimatter cannon, then we can figure out something to destroy it. So they go out, Black Lightning uses his powers to hold back the energy from the uh, antimatter cannon. And so he's holding it at bay for now while they try to figure out what to do next. Back in Purgatory, um, our team of Constantine, Diggle, and Mia are searching for Oliver. They find him, but his soul has been detached from his body, so he doesn't have memory initially. Um, but they're able to get his memory back, and as they're about to leave, they're confronted by Jim Corrigan, um, who is the Spectre, and he tells them, like, the time has come for a new Spectre to be chosen, and it's you, Oliver. And Oliver's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I will say that with all the setup with Lucifer and all that stuff, this was probably my least favorite part of the episode. Um, I felt like this was super rushed. Like, really, really, really rushed. Finding Oliver, getting him to remember who he is, the Spectre showing up. It's just like, hey, I know you guys are about to go do something important, but I'm the Spectre. And I was just like, uh, okay, I guess... Like, I guess that's fine, but I would have liked more time uh, getting to know the Spectre as well as, like, searching for Oliver. Uh, they made Purgatory Lian Yu, which I liked. I really dug that, but I was a little, uh, I didn't really like that. I didn't really like how rushed that was. I would have preferred if they had spent the entire third hour uh, with them trying to find him and all that stuff. And then maybe hour four he becomes the Spectre, but I don't know. That's just me. So back to uh back to the antimatter cannon it is getting ready to explode black lightning can't hold off the energy for much longer and barry realizes oh this is it this is how this happens this is the moment that the flash disappears in the crisis because they figure out that if barry runs at a different i think it was is like if he runs at a specific uh, speed with a specific frequency, it, he can reverse the energy back into the antimatter cannon, which would destroy it. 
So Barry kind of gets, he's like, this is it. This is what's going to happen. This is my, this is my moment that I have been waiting for. This is the moment that, you know, Flash vanishes in crisis. This is the moment where I have to say goodbye. And we get this really nice moment where Caitlin, Cisco, and Barry all kind of give each other this last hug. And they're like, we've prepared for this. This sucks. But like, this is, this is what it's got to be. And so he gets ready and Earth-90 Flash comes up to him. He's like, hey, Barry, I just want to let you know I'm really proud of you. You're really brave for this and I'm really sorry. And he steals Barry's speed. And he's like, the monitor said that the Flash must die. I'm a Flash too. And so he basically tells Cisco, breach me back onto the treadmill that's powering the machine. I will I will be the one who sacrifices myself for this. Um and Barry's just like, no, you can't do this. And Earth-90 Flash is like, no, I have to. Like, this is this is what's going to happen. And so he, um, before he goes, you know, Cisco opens up a breach and he tells Barry this amazing line. He's just like, you know, I'm so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. Keep riding the lightning, kid. And then he runs through the breach back onto the treadmill um, and he just starts running and cisco has to breach everybody out barry doesn't want to leave he doesn't want to leave uh 90s flash there but cisco is able to pull him away everyone escapes and there is this amazing moment where it just kind of slows down it slows down and it focuses just on the feet of the 90s flash and you just hear like his feet are hitting this treadmill and then it speeds up and he is running man he's running against the current of the energy uh for the antimatter wave it's just it's you know starting to implode and then right as you know it kind of ramps up all the way to the climax like tensions at all time high we get this flashback back to i think it was like the very first episode of the 90s flash cartoon seeing young john wesley ship um have this great moment with uh, i believe her name was dr tina um where she basically says you know i believe in you and it just i cried i cried i cried that's just what happened um god ah over 20 years 20 years of being this character um and he gets to go out saving the multiverse and so it flashes back to him. He disintegrates just like the Flash did. The antimatter cannon explodes and the wave is halted right outside of Earth-1. Earth-1 is the only Earth left standing. So we head back onto the Wave Rider. Everyone's still kind of reeling by what's all happened. Uh, we get this great scene between uh, Jefferson and Barry, which is essentially, you know, Barry kind of now taking the reigns as the elder statesman for the Arrowverse and essentially welcoming uh, Jefferson into it. They have this really great um, parallels where they both talk about how um, Barry's mom was killed by his uh, worst enemy and he had to learn to grow from it. Jefferson reveals that his father was also killed by one of his worst enemies. And it's just, it's one of those things where they have that superhero handshake and it's like the same feeling that I got watching Oliver and Barry connect for the first time. I got this feeling. And if Jefferson and Black Lightning gets more integrated into Arrowverse now, I, I'm stoked for it. I'm excited. Uh, Jefferson, you know, hits this great line where he's like all right 
So we've done what we can, and we are going to rage against the dying of the light. We are not going to go quietly. And so I loved that. So Jefferson is officially on board. Um, and then Harbinger returns to the Wave Rider as a servant of the Anti-Monitor. Uh, Harbinger then kills the Monitor while being basically being used as a conduit through uh, or for the antimonitor kills the monitor and restarts the antimatter wave. Um, Earth One is destroyed by the antimatter wave, so it's gone. All the Earths are gone. Uh, the antimatter wave is now coming towards the um, uh, towards the what's it called the Wave Rider. And as they're like heading out, uh, Pariah appears. He's like, I know what I'm here to do, and he sends all seven of the Paragons away to uh an unknown location at the time uh and then everyone else including we're talking um we're talking ray palmer we're talking our clark and lois we're talking diggle all of our main characters that aren't iris all of our main characters that aren't part of the seven paragons are just wasted by this antimatter wave so we pop up over at the vanishing point, which is the end of reality, end of time. Uh, the last time we saw the vanishing point was back in Legends of Tomorrow, season one, I believe. Um, and we have our seven paragons. Our seven paragons are the only survivors of the multiverse. So we've got, um, let me pull my notes up again. So we have the uh, paragon of hope being Kara, paragon of destiny being Sarah Lance. Paragon of Truth being Kal-El uh, of Earth-96. Paragon of Courage being Batwoman of Earth-1. Paragon of Honor being uh, John Jones, Martian Manhunter of Earth-38. Paragon of Love, Barry Allen of Earth-1. And the Paragon of Humanity, Ryan Choi of Earth-1. Um, still unclear exactly how Ryan Choi is going to fit into defeating the Anti-Monitor, but whatever. But as soon as all of them are there, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this, like... Okay, cool. Like, I did not expect Brandon Routh Superman to get this much screen time, but I'm down for it. I'm ready. Like, he's going to... We're going to have a smackdown with the Anti-Monitor between him and Superman, and I'm so ready for this. Um, he starts to ripple, and, like, beams of energy start exploding from him, and he's like, something's wrong, something's wrong. And he sinks to the ground and changes into fucking Lex Luthor. I was so mad. I was so angry. Like, oh, it made me so... I, like, I live-tweeted as I was watching this, like, man, fuck Lex Luthor. I was so mad. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, Lex Luthor apparently stole a page from the Book of Destiny and scratched out Superman's symbol and uh, wrote Lex Luthor. So he is now apparently the Paragon of Truth, which is ironic. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty much where it leaves off. Um, our six paragons and Lex Luthor are at the vanishing point, the end of time. The Antimonitor is going to come after them and, uh, the multiverse is done. So our next stop is January 14th. That's when the next, uh, I believe it's the final two on the same night, uh, the final two chapters of Crisis are going to, uh, debut. So we've got about a month until we get the conclusion of this, uh, it's a great, you know, Infinity War style cliffhanger for us. I'm, I'm mad about the Superman bait and switch, but 
I'm sure that this is all going to pay off. Overall, really enjoyed Crisis. Like I said, uh, Chapter 2 was my favorite out of the three. But I really enjoyed it overall. I thought it was a great uh, great use of all the characters that they had at their disposal. And I'm really excited to see what exactly they do. Um, I forgot, dude, Black Lightning was brought in for this episode and then destroyed, you know, by the antimatter waves. So what was, like, the point of bringing... Anyway, um, so I am really interested to see what they do, where they go from here. Are we going to get the rebirth of the multiverse? Is it all going to just take place on Earth-1 now? Like, what's the deal here? Um, so a lot of... Uh, a lot of questions, but I am really, really excited. So um, that also brings us to uh, this segment, the weekly review. Uh, the next installment of this is a month away. So in between then and now, I've got to fill this uh, fill this segment. So um, if you have any ideas of what you'd like me to review each week between now and Crisis, feel free to let me know on either of our social medias, at Pod on Twitter and Instagram, or through email to geeksplain at gmail.com. Feel free to give me your suggestions on what I should review in the interim between now and uh the conclusion of Crisis, and uh, yeah, overall, man, just a great crossover, really excited, action-packed, uh, this absolutely lived up to the Crisis on Infinite Earths name so far, uh, while making twists and turns that the original story didn't have to keep us on our toes, so really looking forward to the conclusion, also really nervous about everything that's going to happen for this universe going forward and uh yeah so tune in next week for a uh, a brand new interim weekly review again i'm going to figure it out by next week so uh look forward to that but for now let's hop on over to this week's comics countdown Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request that through our social media at Pod. That's at Explained P-O-D through Instagram or Twitter or through email because I'm an old man. I still read email to geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into this week's books, we got to talk about last week's books with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And uh, we had some good front runners last week, some really good comics that I read. Uh, but one kind of stood above the rest, and that was... Batman Universe, number six of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Nick Darrington. I've just loved this book so much. It's so good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Batman's universe-hopping adventures through space and time have been fantastic, and I'm really sad to see this book end. But I really enjoyed this final issue, as I've really enjoyed the entire series, and I'm sad that it has to end. But... Um, that doesn't mean that uh, Brian Michael Bendis is off the hook here, which brings us to this week's books. Um, and before I get into it, I've got five books that I want to talk about. There's one book in particular that is not on the list that I have to, I just have to mention because it wouldn't be me if I didn't mention that. Uh, this week, Superman number 18 is coming out, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Ivan Race. And, um, this is apparently going to be the book where Superman uh, ditches Clark Kent 
where he reveals his identity to the world and stops <sighs> stops being Clark Kent. Um, I'm really bummed out about this. Uh, I may be picking up the book just to see what they do, but I have made it very clear that I don't approve of this. I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, the Clark Kent Superman dynamic is something that's been with the character forever, and I get that you want to change the character up, make him fresh, uh, but this... I think would feel like a more novel idea if they didn't already do it in the new 52 era, like th three years ago. So, um, I don't know. I just, I, I really hope that this is either a, a bait and switch or B a temporary change because Superman and Clark Kent is like peanut butter and jelly. You don't mess with it. It's perfect as it is. So, um, that's my little mini rant on Superman number 18, which does come out this week. Uh, but let's get into the books that I'm actually excited about reading this week, which kicks us off with Detective Comics number 1017, written by special guest writer Tom Taylor with art by Fernando Blanco. Uh, this book looks really good, and the synopsis sounds really great. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into it uh, with the synopsis here. In the dead of winter, a child has gone missing from the Martha Wayne Orphanage in Gotham City, and the bearer of the Wayne family name is on the case. But to solve this mystery, Batman must turn to another bearer of the Wayne family name, his estranged son, Damien, to hit the night skies as Batman and Robin once more. Can father and son put aside their differences to rescue the missing Miguel Flores? And what other dark turn is in store for the duo on their journey into the night? So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Batman and Robin, classic. Tom Taylor's also been killing it recently. He was the uh, brains behind uh, Deceased. He was kind of the guy driving that, and he's been really knocking it out of the park the last couple of years. So I am looking forward to this book. Next up, we have Captain America, number 17, written by Tana Hisa Coates with art by Jason Masters. Um, the art last week, or last issue, did get better. I'm still waiting for Jason Masters to really kind of uh, knock my socks off, blow me away with his art. But um, we'll see. We'll see. The story is interesting enough that I will continue with it. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis here. The Legend of Steve continues. How can Steve Rogers track down the cop killer who is waging war against the man in blue in New York City when he's every bit as wanted by the cops he's trying to save? So again, um, this is continuing the more street-level Captain America stories, which I'm a fan of, and I am looking forward to it. Next up, another book I'm also really looking forward to is Batman, Curse of the White Knight, number five of eight. Um... This book has just been so good. Uh, I did think that the uh, first issue was probably like the weakest of the bunch, but with every issue, the book has just been grabbing my attention again. Every issue has been getting better, so I'm really excited to see where they're at for this issue. Uh, it is, of course, both written and drawn by Sean Gordon Murphy, and I'm just ah, really excited about it, so let's jump into the synopsis here. The GTO struggles to forgive Batman for his behavior on the tales of tragedy, 
But a promising path forward comes into focus when he uncovers a monumental clue about the mystery of Gotham's ancestral curse. It may prove too little too late, though, as Azrael breaks free of Ruth's mandate and unleashes a radical new reign of terror over the city and its competing super-criminals. So I really dig this version of Asriel. Uh, this version of Jean-Paul Valley, I think, is one of the most interesting takes on the character we've seen in a very long time. So I am really looking forward to this. Uh, next up, we have a new number one, which is Spider-Man 2099, number one, uh, written by Nick Spencer with art by Jose Carlos Silva. Um, this is kind of the flagship for the uh, 2099 event that's going on over at Marvel, and this is spinning directly out of the Amazing Spider-Man book, also written by Nick Spencer. So I'm looking forward to this. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Miguel O'Hara is a rising star at Alchemax, but his world is about to come crashing down. The future of the Marvel Universe is about to die, and the world needs a hero. As Miguel faces a destiny he's tried to run from all his life, the secrets of 2099 begin to unravel here. So that's kind of teasing that um, we're going to get uh, some answers as to what really this uh, 2099 event that Marvel is putting on is uh, going to be about. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Miguel O'Hara is one of the best Spider characters that we've uh, ever had, ever created. That's why he was sorely missed from the original Into the Spider-Verse movie and why the post credit scene featuring him, voiced by Oscar Isaac, uh, was so exciting. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Nick Spencer's been doing really, really good stuff with Spider-Man and his whole uh, Spider-Man or Spider-Verse, and I am looking forward to this a lot. But my big book of the week, the book I am most psyched about to read, is Far Sector, number two of 12, written by N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell. I really dug the first issue. It did win uh, Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week for the week that it came out. Or is it the week after it came out? Time is confusing, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but I'm really stoked about this. Uh, Green Lantern hype for me is at an all-time high, both with the uh, announcement of Green Lantern Earth 1 Volume 2 as well as the impending uh, Green Lantern show that will be coming to HBO Max. Really, really looking forward to this. I cannot explain how excited I am, um, especially getting more like procedural uh, detective noir style uh, Green Lantern stories, which I think we don't have enough of. So yeah, looking forward to this. Uh, let's jump into the synopsis here. Rookie Green Lantern Sojourner Joe Mullane's investigation of the first murder in 500 years hits a snag when the murderer is murdered. Huh. Whatever's going on, it's something to do with the switch-off, a highly illegal genetic cocktail that restores dangerous feelings to the emotionless citizens of the city enduring. So I love the idea of the city enduring and putting a Green Lantern in that. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, the idea of, a, of the switch-off uh, being a 
basically like a rabid cocktail uh feels very mass effect and i think that's what i like so much about this story so um yeah really really excited about this so that is going to do it for this week's comics countdown to recap we have detective comics number 1017 captain america number 17 batman curse of the white knight number five of eight spider-man number Spider-Man 2099, number one, and Far Sector, number two of 12. If there are any books that I missed, feel free to let me know through either of our social medias or through email. Um, I love discovering new books, so feel free to let me know. Um, Really looking forward to all the books that we have this week. It's not a lot. It's not a book-heavy week like we've had uh, even just last week, but the books that are coming out this week are quality. Um, I have my gripes with Superman 18 that I've already uh, laid out pretty clearly, but I think the hype for the books that I am excited about outweighs that. And uh, overall, Green Lantern right now is killing it. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Feel free to uh, reach out and let me know what you thought of anything we talked about today, whether it be the comics that we talked about that defined this decade for me as a reader, or the crazy bonkers stuff that happened over the three chapters of Crisis this week. Um, I would love to have that conversation with you guys. If you enjoyed what you have listened to so far, first of all, thank you for listening all the way through. And second of all, feel free to give us a rating and review and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you happen to be listening to if you didn't enjoy what you heard um never mind but (laughs) uh but seriously uh giving us the ratings giving us the reviews really helps us out uh both positive and constructive reviews are taken into account i've been building this podcast over almost two years now with the help of my listeners. So I want to say thank you for helping me to build this podcast be as best as it can be. And I'm excited now that the decade is almost over to jump into the next decade with both this podcast and with you listeners. And giving us the reviews and the ratings does help us get into the, uh, just into the listening space of listeners just like you. So tune in next week uh, for a pretty special podcast i'm really excited about this uh my good friend jesse pickering is going to be guest uh is going to be a special guest on the podcast next week uh talking all things star wars in the lead up to the release of rise of skywalker next friday as of this recording and uh we are going to be talking about how we personally rank every single star wars film so all 10 films so far uh we're going to be ranking them from 10 to 1 from worst to best and i'm really excited about the discussion that we uh will be sharing with you next week and once again i want to give a really big thank you to you the listener um for uh being so patient with us and the delay. Uh, Like I said earlier in the episode, um, it's been a crazy week. I have been swamped with auditions and that unfortunately didn't give me a whole lot of time to get everything recorded and uploaded on time. It's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. So um, I will do my best to make sure that I get the episodes out um, 
on time next year and next decade. So uh, definitely look forward to next week's episode, counting down uh, every Star Wars film ranked. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, actually it won't be the same geek time because it will be on time. So on time, but the same geek channel. And for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Zana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.